Welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. Uh, coming up is a chat, uh, if you have, uh, and a good one, a one that I, I really enjoyed in person for the first time in a while at the new location. I think the sound quality is good. It felt warm and inviting and all the things that uh, I, I liked and it felt like are valuable to a, a space. Maybe you can just get together anywhere. Some uh, old shop with oil all over the ground and the smell of various chemicals in the air. You could probably still have a very good conversation there. But I like for the the space cave for it to have a certain feel. And I think this new space is really getting it. And my guest is someone who I used to run into. We'll talk about this. I would always see him outside of the Earwolf Studios in the very early days. I didn't get into finding out what his background is as far as his education I didn't do a great job of following up on a couple things, but overall, a very great chat and just too much to cover. Certain things are going to get left out, and you can probably Google those details anyway, Um, but I hope you enjoy it. And if you haven't yet joined the Patreon, you can listen to this whole chat early in totality. So this will just be part one, and then next week part two will come out, still with no ads. This show is made ad-free by it's made possible to be ad-free by contributions from listeners just like you so thanks for supporting the patreon community it really does help and like i mentioned you can listen to this whole chat at the patreon uh early ad-free in total anyway here is part one with my friend shiruz shocket all right shiruz exciting news i just i dove right in I pressed record. Nice. We are Let's go. officially podcasting. This is the first one in the new space. I'm glad you like it thus far. Sharus Shocket. I just learned. I, th- I always thought it was pronounced Shawcat. I don't know why. I've never said your last name because how often do you like, although, you know, people that come like in movies, this is very common. Hello, I'm Bob Stevens. I say their full <laughs> name. I never say that. I never say my full name. But then if someone introduces themselves with their full name, and I just say, hey, I'm Dave. And then I'm like, should I have said the whole thing? Like, couldn't hurt for them to know my whole name. But then I also, it feels, I don't know if it's presumptuous or maybe it's like a level of confidence or something. Or I'm like, I just wasn't raised that way. I don't know. But you, you're you pretty mellow. You don't strike me as a two names type of dude. I feel like my first name is complicated enough, too, that I just throw in my full name at somebody. They're not going to remember any part <laughs> of it, so... It's nice that it's four syllables. Do-do, do-do. Yeah. Like you could use that. I think golfers use that. Like <laughs> two two going back, two going forward. Sharus, shock it. <laughs> shock it. Like, is that how you say it? Shock it? Yeah. Like, that's, man, that's a cool last name. <laughs> shock it. I mean, did you get, I don't think you would get teased with a name like that. More, It's like having the last name like super or power hmm. or you know because it feels like how are you gonna make fun of someone with the last name shock it that's a cool one 
It's like charge it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so you didn't get made fun of. No. I can't say that uh, Huntsberger was the same experience, mm. unfortunately. But you know, everyone's <laughs> got their own thing. Well, I we every time we talk or chat, I'm like, man, this guy knows so much stuff. And I always really enjoy our conversations, and I always walk away being like, that would have been a really good podcast. Because you know so much, you're really able to, I don't want to set you up too much, because maybe you'll freeze up here and, and have a, <laughs> a terrible time. But I think you're able to articulate things very well and make it palatable for someone like me that maybe kind of has heard of a topic or or a subject, but maybe doesn't know much more about it than that. And our for the for the listener, our acquaintanceship, our friendship goes back over a decade. Yeah. I'll bet in that over a decade, we've physically seen each other five to ten times. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> if even. Yeah. If even that. But <laughs> always a pleasure. And I remember the I probably remember well, obviously, the last time we met and had coffee was great because we could kind of catch up post-pandemic and just what are you up to and a lot had transpired. But I think indelibly burned in my mind is the early stages because it was not only the beginning of Earwolf, but it was sort of the beginning of big podcasting, as we will call it. Yeah. As it was, as it was setting in motion to become this huge juggernaut that it is, that at the time... I'm sure when you told people, it was the same when I told people what you worked in, they'd go, what's that? And you'd have to explain, it's like a radio show, but you can, they'd go, oh, where do I, it was still that, that seems so long ago that anyone now, the most, or the least tech savvy person on the planet these days can go, well, I, I like a podcast. Everyone knows about it, but this goes back to walking outside of the early Earwolf offices. And I remember seeing you in the beginning, you guys were all young, excited, mostly just like volunteering, or at least that's what we were led to believe. Yeah. Like all these interns just showed up because they love comedy. And then very quickly that wave crested and it was like, <laughs> boy, they are really taking advantage of all these kids <laughs> that moved here to be a part of this. And I remember you standing outside on the street on sunset, just bewildered. And I think it was, maybe it was Dustin it sounds right that it was Dustin. It might have even been like an earlier engineer because he was like almost even in the second wave. Yeah. But kind of said our, his goodbyes to us and then walked over to you almost to like give you a hug, like <laughs> hang in there, buddy. And I remember you kind of in some way, maybe you didn't verbalize it, but I think you did just kind of saying like, I, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep this up. And you were at the time building what was the full infrastructure for like a podcast network, like the whole website, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like there wasn't really much precedent at the time for what like a podcast network should be or like what it's like. I, I was working on all of the, the various digital aspects of it from building out the website. We had a bunch of different apps we were trying to do more experimental stuff with. Um, yeah, it, it was a, it was a crazy whirlwind of a, of a time. But um, like, yeah, I mean, 13 years later now, like I definitely don't regret my time there. I think uh learned a lot, got to to try out a lot of cool stuff that I think had an influence on Earwolf even after I left and definitely other podcasts and other podcast networks. And yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel. I don't have a sour grapes feeling. I, I, I there were definitely times when I thought, man, they moved office spaces and they, every time we were in there, they're buying new gear, new mixing boards, hiring new people. And every time we were not getting any money and I kept feeling like, is this what the interns are feeling as well? 
So, but at the same time, I was selling tickets to stand-up shows, and I felt like this is okay. This isn't ideal. I think if you're a, a more shrewd business person, there's always hindsight. But I didn't get into comedy to be a shrewd business person. So, right. especially at the time, I just thought, oh, this is awesome. Like, this is helping the the bigger picture career of mine, and not I'm not focusing so much on. However, it's hard to say that because you're like, man, I'm still kind of struggling to pay rent, and yet people are, can I get a picture with you? Like, <laughs> this doesn't this doesn't sync up all that well. Were you dealing with that as well? Like your time's getting stretched so thin, but if you're not getting compensated, is that what kind of was the breaking point? It was a little bit of that. It was also, I think, just growing pains that any startup has. Like we were definitely starting to become more known, uh, more successful as a network, and yeah, just you know, it was uh, it was our founder and CEO's first company as well. So I think. Just naturally, uh, in the growth of a startup, I think there's phases where, uh, you know, not everybody stays aligned and it, things just kind of get grading for that reason. So I think it was a natural sort of like, all right, time to split apart and, you know, go find other things to work on. <laughs> I think of my uh, relationship with Jeff, the first CEO, and they, it seemed like they went through five or six in the next right. few years. It was like every few months, I'm the new CEO, like, where'd so-and-so go? Oh, yeah. And there was, I think, one woman throughout. It was pretty stereotypically just a bunch of dudes. Mm. Uh, but the first one, and I never thought he would step away. I thought, this is his baby. He's going to just have this for... I didn't fully understand the corporate structure of like build something up, sell it off, retire if you want to, and yeah. or start the next thing. But I remember him running around, being kind of on no sleep, making a lot of promises to people, trying to make it seem easy. You're trying to be pleasant to everybody, but also right. kind of like... No, 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 no. You need to record right now. Could we? I just not feel... Yeah, you know, and he would like... I just remember people, especially comedians, I my neck, if I could just record in an hour and be like, no, no, we need... Because we. I already sold this ad space and it's got to go out. And he just had that energy about him. Yeah. And for me, I remember him calling and just kind of begging, but also sort of insisting that we switch over the website and that he was going to pay for hosting. Not really pay us. I don't know what kind of deal they made with Squarespace, but the moment the show ended, that deal ended and our website went down and it was very like, man, this dude like told me one thing and then it didn't fully hold up. And you can either take that personally or be like, if you're a CEO and your eyes are just on the prize of going to build this up, going to just rake in as much ad revenue as possible. And I think even just like mid-roll kind of spun out of that almost accidentally. Like so many people are calling to put ads and stuff. Why don't we just form another company so he had a lot of plates spinning, and I don't hold it against him that a few things got lost in the shuffle. Sure. But when it impacts you, you're like, mm, would have loved if I didn't agree to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Earwolf is also like just interesting from, I don't know how much of this I'm allowed to share. So, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't either. I, okay. I should say the views expressed here are um, <laughs> belong to someone else, not me, not Sharus, just <laughs> other people. And if, if it, we, we didn't sign NDAs, so we complete <laughs> ignorance, we don't know what should or should not be talked about here. Yeah, I'll, I'll avoid saying any direct or, or uh, exact numbers too, but like Earwolf was uh, funded by Scott and Jeff, like out of pocket. And then uh, they shared ownership of it, and then Midroll spun out, and that was, I think, uh, like 95-5 Jeff, uh, towards Jeff. Like, it was a very different ownership split. And then that ended up being the much bigger business as well. So when they ultimately got acquired by, uh, I think, was it Scripps that acquired them yeah. first? Mm-hmm. Um, like, it was, I think, majority uh, Midroll. So, like, the j- even just the way that, like, priorities shifted and definitely went against the network and the sort of comedic expression as like 
the core focus of what was being worked on and, and where the value was and into, all right, we're an ad, ad selling business yeah, um, because we were early and we could, you know, get enough market share that way. And yeah. Yeah. And seeing some of your faces in the beginning, I think you were probably at that first party where it was kind of like Sklar Brothers and um, Howard Kramer yeah. had a podcast. There are a handful of people that were kind of the early Earwolf crew. And I remember all the interns, that was part of their thing. Like, well, you get to be out here and you get to come and hang out with these comedian people that you know. And everyone looked genuinely happy. Like, this feels pretty punk rock. It feels something like it's new. And yeah, I didn't, I never equated that to like mid-roll being the business. And when the business became the bigger thing, things definitely shifted. I mean, it didn't take a rocket scientist to see that podcasting was going to become, I mean, I just always think like those trays that you put your stuff in at the airport, it didn't take anyone that long to figure out, hey, everyone's eyes look there. Why don't we put ads down there? Mm. (laughs) That's just like, to me, sums up American capitalism, maybe the world over, but specifically America. Like, whoa, hold on. There's space there. Can I put can I put my business? <laughs> and so knowing that a lot of ears were listening, especially cool, you know, that young demographic everyone's looking for were listening to these shows, you could you could tell that was eventually gonna be more valuable to them than yeah. they realized. Yeah. Or maybe they knew that all along. I don't know. Yeah. And I mean I th- it, that was one of Jeff's really early focuses too. I think he was looking for uh, you know, as, as any startup owner would like external validation from different sources that like, Hey, you're, you're onto something with this business. And I remember really early, he was trying to get advertising soul. Like that was always a core part of our model. We were also doing like some merchandise sales and stuff like that. But advertising was definitely always going to be kind of the bigger business side of things. Um, and I remember Jeff's like big dream at that time was selling ad space to Anheuser-Busch as like, <laughs> proof that this is like a serious business and him like <laughs> flying out there and like it, it was a whole like focus for him wow um and i don't think we ever closed that deal or if we did it was after i would left um i think we ended up going with uh our, our first advertiser was like some online betting thing which like classic like even still is a popular <laughs> podcast ad format um but yeah no we, we were definitely looking at advertising as like this is going to be what makes us a serious business and like something that people aren't like confused by or just weird in hindsight. <laughs> I, that little snippet, that thing you just said reminds me so much of like true crime pro- podcasts where they, you see into the psyche a little bit, they would pull back and go, that's Sharus. He was an early developer at Airwolf. <laughs> and to get a bigger picture of like why Jeff was so obsessed on Anheuser-Busch, I talked to his friend Jeff from high school. You know, you'd, you'd build this picture, but like, I never knew something like that of like, because we were very, hey, well, yeah, we'll record ads, but we're not going to do companies that we feel are, you know, whatever that may be, too big and or too ignorant toward the climate change issue and or the just environment as a whole or their workforce or you know we we were how snobby can you be when you're recording ads but it felt like to me podcasting was embracing this smaller just barely out of the maybe they weren't brick and mortar kind of small businesses but they were close to that i started a sock company in my in my dorm room and now we sell socks and you're like okay talk about the socks they'd send you some socks or snack boxes or whatever it was i mean it, it it changed so much but Anheuser-Busch would have felt so bizarre. Yeah. And and podcast ads like are so unique in that you're you're listening to a host that you probably spend like hours a week with and they're actually reading to you like the this endorsement of a product. So if it's not something that they actually love, like it's 
it just feels like a violation of that medium, <laughs> like to advertise that way. I definitely struggle with that a lot. And really on Blast Off, we didn't record a ton of ads because we could hardly ever get into it. And we would let them know, like, yeah, we, we can't do that. We just, there's no spirit to it. Or, and when we do, we didn't get any money. So mm. we'd be like, why are we doing this? Like, we did a whole bunch, a run of these shows. And then one time, accidentally, they included us, they CC'd us on an email where a listener made handmade jewelry, which, and it was science themed. That fit us so perfectly. So we had put them in touch, like, hey, yeah, let's do some ads. We were going to offer them for free. Mm -hmm. And Jeff jumped in, no, 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 let us handle that. But we saw some later emails and they, it was, it just felt like someone was walking down an alley. Like, do you want to buy some stuff? And we're like, yeah, you can come over here and like put it in the front of our store. And they got grabbed and thrown into another room. And the money that she was charged was, uh, it was not alarming, I would say, but it was eyebrow raising. Like, Mm. whoa, that how many listeners is this? And she later was like emailing to ask, like, can I get some of that back? This is a big uh-huh. thing for me. I'm an independent contractor and, and I, I can't believe I spent that much money and I'm not really seeing a return on that investment. And had we known how much it mattered to her, you know, I'd like to think we would have really sold the ads a little more because she sent us jewelry and we were like, this is really cool. But we'd also be like, oh, my hinge kind of broke a little. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if, if that happened, just not realizing how much money they had asked of her and so like you see those little behind the curtain moments where you're like something is happening here that's very cool and very punk rock but that intersection that you just brought up of the people that that I listen to the people that I think are like my friends are also going folks I gotta tell you it's the best product I've ever had I mean that's not any different than what like AM radio hosts do they sell anything any snake oil anything and then it kind of turned especially comedians to me comedians are supposed to be the ones like here is bullshit. Right. I see it. I'm calling it out. I'm sharing it with you. In silliness, whatever it may be, but when I tell you something is nonsense, you can trust me because, like, I don't sell you nonsense. And then suddenly they are every break of their podcast. So that was a little bit of a bummer. Yeah. Do you think that uh, there are podcasts that have managed to avoid that? Because I, I think that that's, it, that's that element has grown to such a great degree since, like, 2010, which is, like, the era that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, do you, do you think anybody's managed to avoid that while like, <laughs> keeping something sustainable and growing? And that Yeah, the second part of that is the bigger question because you can definitely put out a podcast. I mean, this one is over 200 episodes and is not sustainable. It's not, it's not financially sustainable. I think part of the reason of doing it of like, and I didn't even know about Patreon in the beginning. I just mm. thought I want to do something that just at the core of it isn't isn't built to become a, a revenue service. You know, obviously sure. I would like it to have some value and have people how do you define the ethics involved in that? What am I comfortable with? Am I comfortable with Anheuser Busch money? Maybe Monsanto money? Where mm. does it end? Where does it oh Coke Brothers gave me a bunch of money to yeah. say this? <laughs> it could just keep going. And so you're like, if people just directly become a member, that feels nice. And I have, you know, a handful of Patreon people, which is cool. And it feels like, is that sustainable though? I don't think so. I don't even think I pay for like the software I use every Mm. month, but I'm sure there are a number that have. And, but I'd be curious if it's strictly Patreon, no ads. Cause I think it's just too enticing to be like, well, we got that Patreon money. People don't seem to mind that on top of that, it's just like cable. It's just like any other thing where, oh, I'm a cord cutter and it's cheaper than cable. What's going to happen when everyone's off cable? They certainly won't raise the prices. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not interested in money, right? And they're not going to charge me and then also show me ads, but everyone does it. It's just yeah. how you define sustainable. 
I think that too, with like so many celebrities involved in podcasting, think of the overhead during a writer's strike, during quarantine, your mortgage is still due right. on like a multi-million dollar home, your insurance, maybe your private school tuition for your kids, maybe college funds, whatever it is, it's a big machine. And so suddenly you're like, yeah, I will do any ad. I'll sell credit cards for big banks. I will do predatory loan companies. I'll do whatever fossil fuel companies that are ravaging ecosystems. I'll do any of that because I got to keep this up and I've built this, you know, I think everyone talks themselves into or out of why it's okay. Yeah. Well, I built this career on, you know, really earnestly saying what I meant and that should be enough. Now can't I do this Exxon commercial? And I think as the kids that in the beginning are like, no, you sold out. As they get older, they're like, ah, everyone's just got to keep it going. Yeah. You know, define sustainable. So that's a long-winded answer, but like, <laughs> I'm sure someone is doing it sustainably. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah, I think defining sustainability is like, uh, that's such an interest. There's a whole, uh, you know, discussion to be had there. Like, because I, I don't think it's been defined in a way that satisfies both the people that need to make the tools to to make that possible, those systems, and the people that are going to be impacted in using those systems. Like, in the the like 15 years I've been working in like digital media, that's not been a, a clear thing yet yeah it would be interesting if they rated it you know how you can as a restaurant you can get star ratings mm -hmm. and or as like a not just one through five stars but like oh they're a three c like, what does that mean well that means that they do this and this and this and right. they, you go, oh that's cool i like that podcast yeah they're never going to sell you an ad that is for a company that later was like disbanded or you know discredited or but how can you know? Sometimes you get those things and you're like, this seems pretty good. And yeah. then later you find out, ah, they were lying the whole time. Right. So it is tough. I mean, it would, I try to, with my scripted podcast, reach out to small businesses. Cause I feel like if I'm on that end, if I'm, mm -hmm. if I am mid role, except I'm not accepting offers, I'm reaching out to companies and being like, do you want to like do basically free advertising? And I just want to get the word out. And I feel like that makes me feel like I am part of some community yeah. and that is sustainable to me. But that's my definition. And it's not, again, not like a lucrative sustainability. So yeah, I bet people could write a whole dissertation on how do you define sustainability? Yeah. Because it's to the person. I mean, you take someone who's kind of a psychopath. It's like, it's only sustainable if I just <laughs> keep um, <laughs> uh, Bernie Madoff or something like, you know, it's barely sustainable, but it's sustainable. It's barely there. I mean, I, f I feel like my my personal definition, and it, it shifted a bunch over the years. But like, I think the at the core of it, if if you are somebody who wants to be doing creative work and distributing that to an audience on the internet, sustainable just means that you're able to focus your time on that and pay for your expenses and hopefully save a little bit. But it doesn't necessarily mean riches or like you know hyper growth or anything. I think it's finding an audience that can support you doing this. Uh, uh, comfortably where, where you're comfortable as a creator like yeah yeah definitely i i my favorite version is an extension of that where the artists that i know are always and i don't think many of them live with tremendous overhead sometimes that can come at the detriment of maybe having a family or the the security of i own this house i can't be sub subject to like getting booted out I think oftentimes they make that trade for like, well, I get to, I have the sustainable lifestyle where I'm making art all the time. But typically their version of sustainability is like, if I got that money that would allow for this jump up, 
I'd put it right back into the stuff I'm making. Right. So that level of sustainability, like, is a good feeling as a contributor because you feel like it's never going to their third yacht. It's never right. going to this extraneous thing. It is always going back into what they're making. And, like, I'd like to think I adhere to that. I really like that. I mean, everyone probably has their own definition within that of how much they do that. Sure. You know, like, oh, you say you do that? You bought a coffee last week. <laughs> what? A coffee? <laughs> a true artist would make their own. You're like, oh, my goodness. So that would obviously have like a spectrum in itself. But I like that where, okay, the pandemic came and went or, or the strike happened and I didn't have to do, you know, Exxon ads or something. Right. Again, the views expressed here are not <laughs> associated with Exxon. They're meant as satirical. And uh, please, I can't imagine someone from Exxon would even have a, a, a way to sue us. <laughs> just summarizing that, or just like, anyway, just hypothesizing that taking ad money from them would mean that it's less than ideal. Hmm. It's probably better places that do less damage. Even just digging, even just the worms or the ants or whatever, just that. Hmm. So, uh, but yeah, someone that is like, I don't know, I live pretty meagerly. I make this stuff and like, there's a freedom to that. Yeah. Hundred percent, yeah. I think that, uh, especially living in Southern California, the homeless situation. Everyone has a, everyone wonders about it. Everyone has like, I think it's this. I think it's mental illness. I think it's trauma. I think it's the price of things. I think it's automation. I think it's, you know, addiction and substance abuse, and it just goes on and on. I also do wonder. I'd like to get someone's thoughts, or if you're listening and you have an expert that you know would talk knowledgeably about this. Of how many people do just kind of go, you know, I can't travel. I don't have all the stuff. I don't have any of this stuff. But I also don't have that dread and that worry. I'm not worrying about getting my money to pay for my car payment, for my registration, for my this, for, you know, just the endless thing to keep it up, to stay in the rat race, just be like, all right, I can just kind of leave that. I would guess it's a small percentage, but I wonder if there is some element of that and how many of them are artists? Mm, like, yeah. ah, I scrape together as much as I can. I do like street art, beautiful murals. And then I go back and I live in this tent, but like, can't really take a lot from me. I would be curious, like, looking back on that. If, say if there was a documentary, if that would be looked at as like, that's the most artistic life. <laughs> or be like, that's true insanity. That is just someone that's mentally unwell. I think we'd all have a different perspective on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, I have... I have no idea what the what those results will look like. Yeah, I, don't I think I've rambled too much about that. But but going back to Earwolf and like how you got associated with it, were you listening to those shows and like how what what level were you at as a developer, programmer, software engineer, computer yeah. science? Like what was your background? Uh, so I was in school at the time that I first started listening to Comedy Bang Bang, which at the time was Comedy Death Ray Radio, mm-hmm. uh, and. I have like a, a whole like weird educational history uh, that led me up to that point. Um, but basically I was doing two years at UC Davis uh, to finish up degrees in computer science and communications and uh, was just awfully bored all the time. Like at school was, <laughs> it was never like the best place for me. Like I just never felt motivated to do stuff. I, like, I really always liked being hands-on and making stuff and school was never... I never had that experience at at school, really. But were you one of those kids that could show up and just kind of fundamentally figure out the test, pass it, get decent grades? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Man, what a gift. So you like the world at like, maybe this isn't the best like uh, example, 
But in the matrix where you're kind of reading and seeing like, oh, this is how the world works. I felt like when I was in engineering, that's how certain kids were. They just fundamentally understood how the math lined up with the physical application. And those met perfectly at an exam where they could be like, oh, that's just the second derivative, blah, 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 this derivative of this. And that's this element of physics or that's the force on this object as it's in motion or Whatever the thing yeah. is. That's <laughs> well, kind of how you... physics. But like the computer <laughs> stuff came to me a little bit more naturally. I think I'd spent a lot of time on math and a lot of time on like logic based math. And that stuff just really worked nicely with computers. And mm-hmm. um, I'd started programming uh, first when I was like 10 years old. So it was like built into my mind. Like my mind was like forming with these ideas on like how computers are programmed and how systems work and how to like make those things more and more complex and intricate. Um, so I think I was just like kind of very early on it and, and just spent a lot of time growing up, like obsessed with, with learning how to, you know, understand these things better so I can do stuff with them. Um, but yeah, so I was, I was in, uh, in school bored and just like looking for diversions and things to entertain myself, uh, online and, uh, found comedy death ray radio, I think off of like some Reddit post probably at at that time, like somebody in in a comment, like linking to something. Uh, And then just thought it was really cool and just like started listening to episodes when they were coming out. I think they were like streaming on like K-Rock or, and it wasn't K-Rock, but it was some other like radio station. KXLU maybe? Maybe, I'm I'm forgetting the name. Okay. Like they would actually go and record at that radio station's, uh, at at that radio station. Cool. And uh, broadcast it live. And so I was actually like tuning in live to to listen to them from Davis and uh, just really enjoy them. Never really was like, oh, I should hit them up about working there. Like that that thought never crossed my mind. And then at the end of one episode, um, Scott did something like after like the outro music where he said, hey, we're starting this new thing called Earwolf. We're going to make a network of shows and we're looking for people that are interested in helping us out. Uh, if that sounds like you, send us an email here. And I was like, all right, cool. That sounds interesting. Again, not really thinking too much of it. I thought like I'd probably just end up being like a beta tester on a website or something and yeah. that'd be it. Um, but like, yeah, th- from there, Jeff hit me back like that. Those emails were all going to Jeff. So Jeff was like selecting who he was like seeing interesting applications from. And, uh, yeah, initially it was like beta testing and like sort of leading beta testing on like a very early version of the website that just had comedy death ray radio in Scarborough country. Like those mm-hmm. were the only two shows that we had for quite a few months in the, in the beginning. Um, yeah. And then I think I just kept offering more and more like, oh, we could do this and we could do this. And wouldn't it be cool if, if, you know, these two things connected and like just coming up with ideas for how to make the the sort of like web experience a little bit more engaging and just like feel more like a network instead of just like, here's a website with two different shows. So you can hit play on yeah. you know, on either of them. Um, so I think I just sort of naturally got more and more involved. And again, I was like volunteering all of this for, <laughs> for a long time. And it was good for me because it was, uh, you know, getting to apply stuff, getting to make stuff, but then actually having that go out to an audience was like, new and exciting because I could I could make as much stuff as I wanted on my laptop anywhere and it would be satisfying for me but to actually ship it to an audience and like see what kind of impact that has what kind of response it gets and then iterate and develop from there on like oh people are enjoying this we could also build this thing in and so it's like twice as cool or you know th- those kinds of things to kind of like ask for a specific example I'm thinking of just the web interface to begin with be like 
But is this meaning more like on the player side, like of the actual content? Because I'm thinking of like when websites came out and it was it was still new and then, oh, maybe there would be a carousel with different images for each show. Or like what about individual photos from each episode? Are you talking about things like that? Yeah. I mean, I think before Earwolf, I might be wrong about this, but certainly within like the comedy sphere, the idea that you could go and click into an episode and see like profiles for all of the guest comedians that were on that episode and mm-hmm. then click into their profile and see all of the episodes that they'd been on across the network. That was all like brand new. Mm-hmm. So it was thing it was figuring out things like that of like, all right, we're we're a company that's making podcasts as our business. What are things that we can do with the metadata that we know we're gonna have on every single episode and make that more searchable, more navigatable, things like that. So that that's one example. Um, another really early one was, uh, this thing called Earwolf Live, which was sort of extending on that a little bit and saying, all right, people really enjoy our profiles. And I think the comedians that have, uh, guested on Comedy Death Ray enjoy having a profile where all their episodes are linked because that means that they can just tweet that link out and, you know, promote their appearances that way. So Earwolf Live is saying, all right, another thing that comedians probably want their digital presence to include is all their tour dates. So, we built up this whole index of tour dates uh, amongst all the comedians that had guested and were like, you know, had profiles on Earwolf.com. And uh, yeah, just built like an, a little mini app called Earwolf Live where you could plug in your zip code or, uh, you know, turn on location or whatever and then figure find out really easily like, oh, David Huntsberger is going to do a show 20 miles away from me. I should go check that out. So cool. Those kinds of things. Yeah. I remember, you know, especially when we, we did a tour and we'd be out and there was a period where we were getting emails maybe weekly of new features like that where it became kind of hard to keep up with hey log into this and do this in this dashboard and then you can send this out hey check out this you know we'd be like wait what are what are all these (laughs) things and at that point i think probably bitterly we had started to have a little bit of distrust as to what they were trying to get from us like what ownership or like oh this is bringing in people to your website when they could just go to our sites and get this stuff and i i think that's where any kind of relationship starts to sour. It's right. like every time you're asking us to give you stuff, it's not always coming back beneficial, you know, that kind of thing. But that is, it's just amazing that you were like in this, uh, every story of every startup, everything is that, that fun period where people are throwing yeah. ideas out and what are this? And you try it and something becomes a hit. And I, the last time we met, I was talking to you about like this kind of quasi network I'm building. It's much smaller. It's, it's basically like a show, but within it are a number of shows so that network is all interconnected, cool. which I think is fun. But as I was building it and especially learning about XML and seeing that virtually every company that has anything to do with podcasting is kind of a mosquito attaching to what you were just talking about, where you guys just were at the very beginning of like, all right, it has left a radio station. It is now going out to players as an XML file. And we control the metadata in that file. We control all the little like enclosures. We every element of it we're doing and then a mosquito attaches and like what if i was a plugin what if i you could just enter your info and i'll write that xml for you automatically and you right. go amazing that's great hey where can i see that xml oh you can't we dynamically process it so that you can never download that dot xml file but isn't that like pretty simple code it is but we don't want you to have it we have it so i always feel like what are you getting from me by having this you provide me a service but now you get something that i can't access and so i was asking you about that because in the forums where i was learning how to write xml they kind of all end around 2010 2011-ish you're on a thread like oh this is great and then it just is like no more replies and you look at the date and it's always around them where like it just shifted 
but you were in on that early stage where you were building all that stuff. And I, I remember asking you like, what I'm doing is I'm just kind of like doing documents. And you were like, yeah, it's basically what we did. And that kind of blew my mind. I picture you guys all like writing matrix level code and all, not necessarily no, binary, not. <laughs> but it was like so simple what you guys were doing in the, in the sense of like, you weren't building AI, you weren't building robots. You were writing pretty simple web code and just, it was the features that you were imagining. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to understand the context that listeners were in and, and, the context of us as show creators and how we wanted to present stuff and just trying to figure out new ways of presenting all that. Yeah. So the tech was secondary. It wasn't that hard. Like once you thought of the idea, that must've felt good for someone like you. It was like, yeah, school and all this stuff's kind of boring, but what if, Yeah. and then you had the tools to just like write it up and like, there it is. And yeah. within a short period of time, you can see it live. You can see people commenting on like, what a cool feature, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was an amazing experience for exactly <laughs> that reason. But yeah, all the tech was, was extremely simple. And like, even to this day, like you said, it's, it's the same tech. Yeah. That blew my mind and continues to because the level of mosquitoes and that, that has like a negative connotation. I just, that's capitalism. And people saw right. a way to fill a need. Oh, well, companies want to sell ad space. What if we become a company that sells them to a bunch of networks? I mean, it just keeps going bigger and bigger. We're yeah. like, come in here, get a bunch of stuff for free. And I feel like the end that I was on is a perfect, prayable position. This person just wants the exposure. They just want, like, this is going to help their stand-up dates. We can kind of bilk them out. of We can take quite a bit because they're, they're not going to look into it. They're not a shrewd business type. Why are they going to care how easy this tech is and that they could learn it in, like, a couple hours? So that was revelatory. But I think like you make it seem like the tech was easy. And I don't know that that's the case where like just from a web design perspective, hosting multiple shows and the bandwidth with all of those files and like the server space you guys are having. Did you have like servers there at the facility? What were you using? No, we were uh, using what's called a a VPS, a virtual private server. So Mm -hmm. just paying some company. I forget what it was. It might have been Heroku at the time. Uh, But just paying some company to host our stuff in servers that they manage. So effectively renting servers out monthly um, and just shipping our code there. All right. Well, you kind of glanced over the bizarre educational trajectory of yours, but you're just saying that, or just even like how you were kind of distracted, remind me of uh, Richard Feynman, who, you know, like very brilliant physicist, but would take apart radios and put them back together as a kid and just kind of had to see. And when you were talking about like, I like doing this stuff, it reminds me so much of that. The other day I was having a conversation with someone and I was like, isn't it bizarre when you're smart that even if you're not a great student, you travel around like schools recruit you come do your postgraduate work at Princeton. Like "Ah, I left Caltech. I hated it. Well, come here. And then you just they know you're of a certain echelon of student that it's valuable. So you think of all these physicists and especially the famous ones. They went around over here. They're giving lectures when they're 17 in front of tenured professors and getting laughed at, but then years later being proven right and that kind of thing of you can just kind of drop out of school or not take it seriously and people go, oh, that's because they're too bright. Try our program. And then you come to the next one. Is that kind of what was going on where you just weren't getting satisfied? Definitely not in that tier. (laughs) Um, I think – so like my my sort of weird educational background is uh, I'm the youngest of three kids – and uh, in in our family's background, education has always been like a really huge factor. Uh, my mom's dad uh, was once running basically education programs for all of Asia for UNESCO. Um, he was the first one in our like whole extended family to 
come to the U.S. for for his own education. He got a Ph.D. from Harvard, like really, really legit guy. And uh, that's always carried through in our family, just like values, like education very highly. And uh, my mom, in sort of trying to, you know, enact some of those things uh, and iterate with her own kids and figure out, like, how to provide the best education for us, uh, figured out uh, sort of a financial hack um, that she traveled with my sister. Now it's young enough to sort of, like, you know, do it in full. Um, but in California, which is where we, we grew up, um, the uh, community colleges are 100% free if you're under 18. Mm-hmm. And, and those credits transfer to four-year universities, meaning that you can cut a lot of the expenses and a lot of the time out from a traditional four-year university education. Um, So I was basically going to community college classes since I was 10 years old (laughs) Um, with, like, uh, with my mom, like, you know, uh, accompanying me for for the first couple of years until I got comfortable just being out there alone. Um, But yeah, I was taking, like, I started off with basic math, like just basic arithmetic, which I already knew, but it was like, it was a class to sort of, uh, start getting comfortable with the community college setting where everybody's like, you know, two or three times my age. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I was taking a mix of, uh, mathematics and computer science classes for about eight years at that community college before <laughs> transferring to, uh, to Davis to do two years. That's amazing. Yeah. That is a cool hack. Yeah, I mean, have, have, has anyone ever made like a movie about this? I don't think so. <laughs> you, I mean, you're in Hollywood, man. It's, it's <laughs> such like a your mom's the hero in the story, yeah, unfortunately, because that is a very cool idea and really, I don't know, like courageous, mm-hmm. bordering on like I think the term everyone always uses is like ballsy, but it's it's pretty wild, it's pretty zany to think that up and follow through and do it and believe in it. Yeah, and then I think it's so. I remember. When I was uh, maybe 13 or 14, I don't know why, but a lot of my teachers thought it'd be a good idea if I just to see, took the SATs very early, Hmm. just to see how it would go. I did terribly. But I remember being in there as a young kid with all these high school students, getting a lot of weird looks and feeling so bizarre. Just, why am I here? They, But then I'm kind of embracing it like, they think I'm a genius. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they think I'm here because I'm going to like get a scholarship to go to Harvard and I'm, I haven't even turned 14 yet. And did you feel that or did you eventually over time start to feel just like, eh, it's just school? Uh, I think it was mostly, I, I'm a very socially anxious person, person. So like that was definitely more of what I was leaning towards like early on <laughs> of just like, oh, I'm such a weirdo being in here. <laughs> like nobody likes be, having me around. I just like, uh, it was that kind of thing. And then I just got comfortable with it. Like at, at a certain point, um, cause initially I was just taking summer courses. And then after the first couple of years, I was also taking like evening classes, like while regular school was going on. So you'd be in like sixth grade yeah, and then go after school. Everyone's like, Hey, we're going to go to the park and throw a football <laughs> around. You're like, I got to go to ACC and do some, uh, what's subject like computer science. And yeah. go, oh, all right. All right. Luckily it was just, it was usually like classes that were just two or three days a week and like starting at like six or seven in the evening. So mm-hmm. I didn't miss, I don't feel like I missed out on, on too much of like the, the classic childhood kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it, I, I think it ultimately ended up being a pretty decent balance. Like the time that I would spend, um, you know, studying otherwise, I was just studying stuff that I was a little bit more interested in and that I could pursue at my own pace. And yeah. How many credits did you end up leaving community college with? A lot. I don't, I don't even remember. And and most of them didn't transfer because, again, I started with, like, the most basic arithmetic. Oh, that yeah. Nobody at the four-year university is going to care about that. So um, 
it, I basically maxed out whatever I could when I ultimately transferred and then did two majors while I was at, at Davis, um, which was helped by the fact that I had, you know, accumulated all these credits already. Yeah. I, that I ended up with a, like a minor, which I don't even know why they offered that. It doesn't <laughs> help anything, but it was because of that. I had some credits from high school going in and then they could be like, you know, if you took this class, you'd technically earn a minor. Yes. Like, oh, that's fun to say. I have a major in this and a minor in that. <laughs> but I'm thinking to you sitting there in community college and so like you're someone that understood and still understands cryptocurrency in spite of its varying fluctuations up and down from just more of a practical standpoint as opposed to like anytime you have athletes selling you on i just think you don't have the time to know about this someone told you on a boat how they got the boat and you don't care that then a few months that boat's getting repossessed you just thought i like making money i like being competitive and good at things you know be good at this and then you're selling it and I, i never trust that i do always trust like everyone i've ever known that's like you 10 years ago was like, you got to check into this Bitcoin thing. (laughs) And I would say that. So like my partner, I'd be like, we got to do some Bitcoin thing because everyone I know who's like skirted the system or someone that you could imagine figuring out a way to like write software that they could just chill and hang out all day and make enough to live on likes this thing. And so of course, then it did, you know, what everyone knows it does now. I'm like, yeah, they were right. They're always right. Those like computer kids are always right. But community college is a place where you maybe don't think of those people being. However, community college is such a mix of like, you know, maybe people that didn't focus, maybe that ADD or just other things going on in life, didn't have their priorities straight, maybe didn't graduate high school. But that doesn't mean they don't have like the horsepower in their brain to really get stuff. In fact, like some of them might not have graduated because they're like, high school was so boring to me. I was so beyond it. So what like mix were you finding there? And with some of that... I don't want to say like role model-esque, but like someone you could look to and be like, oh, I see myself in that person. Um, That's an interesting question. I mean, it was definitely a very diverse mix of people at community college. Um, Like you said, you know, all different backgrounds and like some people uh, who had uh, gone through a full education in the past and are now just picking up additional skills that they're interested in or new fields that, you know, they hadn't explored in the past. Um, Yeah, it was... uh, Definitely a very diverse experience. Like just everybody's coming from some some totally different place. And I think that really like I enjoyed that environment way more than than Davis where like everybody's the same age as me and like also everybody's super competitive and getting weird about, you know, things that I don't really care about in, yeah. in, in line with that competitiveness. Um community college just felt way more like everybody's here because they want to be here. They're here to learn the same stuff. They're not like thinking about, you know, some some broader competitive angle the, the way that a four-year university might um yeah sorry i forget the, the question that you asked but uh well i'm now thinking oh just just wondering if you looked around and you know there's um like someone who's st- been sort of like what lack of a better term would be like a housewife for 20 years mm-hmm. and decided all right my kids have kind of moved on now i'm doing something for me she might be sitting there. You might have someone that was incarcerated or in the service or just was out like doing blue collar work out in the sun. And I realized like, I'm too smart for that. I'm going to come in here and like get an education and get, I know a lot of people that did some version of that. And as you see all them, I'm realizing you don't probably form bonds or lifelong friendship because it's so temporary. You know, you're a semester at a time and you, most of them two years and then they're out. Right. But did some of like the, the professors start to, after eight years, be like, hey, Sharus, you're really growing yeah. up. 
Yeah, definitely in the computer science department. I, I had professors that I would consider friends by the end of it. <laughs> um, I also like the the best thing that I, I think I did during my time there was uh, I spent the last two years working for the community college newspaper as well. Mm-hmm. Not not like working for it wasn't a paid thing, but like enrolling in the journalism classes and doing the, the you know, uh, getting involved with the paper that we published every week. And that was that was awesome because I, I suddenly felt a connection to the campus in a way that I hadn't before, like covering it, knowing that we were publishing something to all the other students there, learning about all the things that I wouldn't otherwise be learning because I'm not like, you know, working with all the other people that are reporting on, on the day to day of what's going on on campus. Um, that I think like the last two years where I participated in that felt the most connected to the campus beyond what I could get from just going to class. It was totally different. That's very cool. Yeah. When I went to college, you know, and it, and everyone kind of prepared you, there's that famous cartoon or comic single panel of a auditorium full of people, the professor saying any questions, every single thought bubble says, I don't want to raise my hand and be embarrassed. Hmm. And that you're like, okay, be prepared for that. But I didn't. Ha- I missed that sense of community. I missed that feeling of like I knew the kids in high school that were on the high school yearbook committee and that kind of thing. And that the community is such a big part of learning. Yeah. Maybe not for everyone. There were people I'm sure that sat in the back and like, this is sweet. I'm just a nobody. I can take notes, ace this test. No one will even know I'm here. But I kind of needed the. I needed some interaction. So I didn't do as well in college because of that. I just felt like I'd feel a lot better if I could ask a few questions and not risk getting laughed at or something. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was the same way, but I would I would never go so far as to ask the question. I would just <laughs> figure out what I could try to to learn it on my own. So it was definitely more of like a I'll, I'll figure this out when I get home. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> I relate to that a lot because I feel and I and I always credit like you look at your earwolf time and say like well I learned a lot. Yeah, I think you have to look at any challenging time in your life, the circumstances, and take that away from it as bad as it may be. And sometimes it's not even bad. Sometimes it's just hard. It's not bad. It's just hard. Right. In college, was that where like you're learning something. So then the way people that lose a finger learn how to do things without it, you're like, God, oh, it'd be so much better if I could ask this question. Well, I'll figure it out the other way. And then, right. so you learn how to just pick and poke. And I would guess when you're starting a new podcast network and you're trying to get a solution, but you, but no one's done it before, that's all you can do is just pick and poke and like try and attempt until you're like, hey, it worked. Yeah. And I, I think, think the yeah. web is really great for that, web design stuff. Anyway, Absolutely, sorry. yeah. No, sorry. I think the, one other thing that... Uh, comes to mind now it's like i, I also and didn't enjoy being taught if the, if that makes sense like i i have i don't know if it, if i'd go so far as to say it's like anti-authoritarianism but it, it there's elements of that where i like proving something wrong that was otherwise considered like well this is concrete you know knowledge i like trying things that are like at the edges of that to kind of poke holes into things that are otherwise considered like you know pure un uh uncontestable like information yeah so with with like podcasts like and that being like all new territory it meant i could take lessons from other mediums and how they distribute on the internet and what i like from them and i can combine it with other things that maybe nobody else is thinking about or nobody else is like taking seriously and just sort of come up with new ideas to test them and if they don't work they don't work if they do work, then we've all learned something new because that wasn't part of like the, the, the canon of knowledge before. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that's whew, probably got like a whole, <laughs> this is, would you ever be up for taking a little break and pick sure. back up? Yeah. 
I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. It gets, we pick up, we get further into um, all of it. More computer science things. I mean, what a fascinating background, the education. And part two is a little bit more about how he applies that. And then you really get to see how his mind works and learn a little bit about the future and open source and the internet as a whole. And uh, I, I think it's really fascinating. There were parts of it as I was listening. I'm like, I am going to have to listen back. I'm going to have to rewind here because it was, it was so informative and so great to to get some of that insight, that info. It feels uh, like a lot of that eludes us. People always say that. Um, they don't always say that, but they say something to the effect of, "Why in elementary school they're teaching you how to square dance when no one knows how the stock market works?" And there are things like that with computers where it feels like, shouldn't we all have like kind of a base knowledge of what it was, what it is, what it's going to be? And so I think Sharus lays a lot of that out there. I certainly uh, thought he did, and I liked it. Anyway, let's get out of here. This is a song by Sonia Midtune. It's called Growing Up. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping at Space